Thanks for joining us in our series on the book of Ephesians. In this letter, we get a thorough view of God's cosmic plan of reconciliation and reunification in Jesus Christ. Its truths are vital to the Christian's understanding of personhood and the church. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in Him. Uh, Let's go ahead and turn to the book of Ephesians together. Last week we started off by reading the whole book of Ephesians, but we also asked and answered two questions, if you remember this. First, we talked about the kind of writing that Ephesians is, and then we talked about who wrote it and who it was written to. Uh, We said that the book of Ephesians is a letter, and we we talked about it, that $5 million word, right, the the encyclical uh, that is uh, that type of a letter um, written by the Apostle Paul, written to the church at Ephesus, but also to many other churches so that it would be copied and passed, and this encyclical would be able to address the church in that area. Uh, These also needed to hear the message that Paul was proclaiming. So that was the first thing. Second thing, we talked about the structure of the book. I don't know if you remember this. It has six chapters, kind of divided right down the middle. In the first three chapters, we have a heavy theological benediction or a a eulogy, a a praise to God for all that he is in his his redemption of his people through Jesus Christ. Then in chapters four through six, you have an exhortation or a, a call to action to the church in light of the truth that has been proclaimed in chapters one through three. That's kind of how it breaks down. This is how we began last week, understanding that and then reading through. Now, I had every intention of starting in verse 1 and 2 and then kind of also adding with that uh, the teaching of the purpose of the book of Ephesians. Um, as I started to do this, I realized that was two different things. It's okay to do multiple things, but that can be distracting for anyone. You're like, which I'm supposed to think about this or am I supposed to think about this? So instead of taking verses 1 to 2 into account today, we will do that next week, But today, I simply want us to work through and answer the question, what is Paul's central message in the book of Ephesians? In other words, what is the purpose of him writing this book to the Ephesians church? What is he trying to tell them throughout this whole letter? This is what I want us to do. Let's look at chapter 1. I'm going to look at the first 10 verses, and then we'll pray together. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the bread that you supply for your people on a daily basis. Of course, the physical food and drink that you give and supply us with, but also our daily nourishment that we need to grow in Christ-likeness. 
Your grace is spectacular and overwhelming. You've blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We, we have redemption through the blood of Christ and his death. We who were far off have been brought near God. We who were truly rebels against the king have been changed. And now we sit beneath you, not only as subjects, but as inheritors of the kingdom. We thank you for your immense grace. Help us this morning to come. Would you crush pride? Would you help us to have a broken and contrite heart and repentance so that we would be able to hear your word afresh? Make our heart not stony, but soft, ready to hear. And Lord, that your word would be going down deep in us and you would use it for your honor and glory. May your spirit apply the word to our hearts today. May we together be to the praise of your glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, before I uh, was full-time at Cornerstone, I worked for several years for a company called LifeNet Health. Uh, if, if you don't know much about LifeNet, it's a, an organ and tissue bank uh, here based in a local area in, in Virginia Beach. Um, when a loved one dies uh, and they would like to donate their tissue or their organs, uh, they can work with LifeNet to help potentially save lives and restore health uh, for many different people. There's much to do, though, in that process. You can consider all that would go into, it's a federally regulated industry to make sure that nothing bad would be passed. All these different regulations. Not only that, the stuff that needs to be passed needs to be taken care of and done well and strong and all the things it would need. For instance, when a doctor needs a ligament for someone who's torn their ACL, he needs the ligament to be sterile, he needs to be shaped correctly, he needs to be strong, and all the other medical criteria needs to be met so that this can be the best possible graft for the recipient that needs the surgery. But as you can imagine, to do all that work properly and to deliver that kind of a graft to a doctor means there's a lot of work that goes into it. Not only just by one, but if you can consider the process has many steps, many stages, many processes, many different departments that are involved to try to make sure that they can deliver a graph that will be safe and effective. Um, I won't go into detail, but when this process is, that we're talking about is extensive, there's so many different parts and people that are involved, and even support for other departments that are doing things that may not actually touch the graph by themselves, but they may support another one to do this. And we understand then, in a part of an organization, all of them are necessary to create and deliver a graph that will meet an orthopedic surgeon's expectations. And it will be helpful for the recipient that's going to have that surgery. This isn't, of course, exclusive to LifeNet, but understanding oftentimes when a person is hired, in that chain of events and things that have to happen, they usually do one job. They usually do it, and they do it well, and they're trying to be. They train for that job. They uh, understand it backwards and forwards. They train to all the SOPs to make sure that they don't go outside the guidelines, and they make sure that they can do that really, really well. However, in that sense, they don't know much about what happens before them or after them. Uh, again, it's an extensive process, so there's all kinds of stuff that they have to be concerned with in, in what they're doing. There are good things and bad things about being an expert right in, the, in what you have in front of you, but some of the byproducts are that you don't really know exactly what all that you're doing, how it affects people down the line. For instance, they may have six different processes that they do on this, six different steps, but two of them, they have no idea why they do it. It doesn't make sense to them, but that's in the SOP, that, so they're going to do it. Well, of course. Part of my job through the years was to go in, talk to people, watch their process, 
identify certain problems or issues or potential risks and try to mitigate that risk by having us work a better process or maybe have a different safeguard or something like that. I, I wasn't so much, I was an auditor, which is a delicious, great time, a delicious, a weird word, sorry. Uh, it's a wonderful thing. People love you if you're an auditor. Um, but when you'd go in, you'd, you know, everyone hates you and they don't really want to show you their process. But one of the best things about it was that I would help them by pulling them back and saying, listen, I know you're, you do this job and they did it really well. And I was so thankful they did a great job. But if we pulled them back for a bit, and saw this process over here. And then if we took them downstream and saw this process over here, and then kind of talked through the whole process from beginning to end and where it's going, and they could start to understand that what they did was really important, even if it was a support position, because they understood it was really important to support that piece, which made sure that this thing happened to the graph so they could go on to the next and eventually get to the doctor and the patient and actually be helpful for them. Now, of course, it's, it's extremely helpful then for people to hear and see and understand the bigger picture, and that helps them do their job better or at least understand it. It's extremely helpful to do that. It doesn't guarantee that they'll do their job that much better, but it certainly does help them. It explains the larger purpose, explains the importance of what they're doing, their role, and their purpose. It allows them kind of for a new motivation potentially or uh, an improved understanding of how their process fits into the whole. This is what Paul is doing in Ephesians. He is going to help the church understand the plan of the mystery of God so that the church can understand their role and play it well. He's pulling back to say, let me give you what's going on, the big picture, what God has done, what he is doing now currently in you, and what he will do. This is what Paul is doing in Ephesians. He's proclaiming the plan of the mystery of God. He is explaining the mystery of his will, of God's will, according to his purpose. Now, why do I say that in that way, and what then is the mystery of God, or the mystery of his will? Let's take a look here in chapter 1 and start in verse 7. But we really need to clue in on verses 9 and 10. So we're going to start in 7, you'll see the flow, but 9 and 10 is where we'll pick up the most important piece to answer these questions. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So what is this mystery? Look at verse 10. It tells us it is a, a plan for the fullness of time. He, Paul, is making it known. It's been revealed to Paul through Jesus Christ, but Paul is now going to make it known in the fullness of time that God will fulfill his plan. Okay, okay, we get that. Then what is the plan? What's the mystery? What's the plan? Verse 10 again. To unite all things in him things in heaven, and things on earth. Paul is proclaiming that a cosmic reconciliation of all things is coming, and that this plan has been set forth in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, hear these words again because it's the central message of Ephesians. He is saying 
that the plan being revealed is that God, in the fullness of time, will unite all things in Christ, both in heaven and on earth. Paul is saying that the day will come when there will be cosmic reconciliation, unification. Now, it hasn't happened yet. We can see that simply because he says it will be executed in the fullness of time. It hasn't happened yet, but this is the plan that he is laying out for all the churches to see. He is making us aware of the bigger picture. He's pulling us back and helping us to understand. He's showing us that one day all things will be united in Christ. But we have to ask the question, what does that mean? All things will be united in him. What is cosmic reconciliation, cosmic unity? I mean, it sounds really awesome. It sounds like epic, cosmic reconciliation. Well, make no mistake, it is, actually. Um, the prophet Zechariah, he speaks about the day of the Lord. He talks about the end. He says many things that are helpful for us, but today I just want to read one verse to help us, and we're going to go on and see some other things. Zechariah 14.9 says this, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and his name, one. There will be complete harmony and unity throughout all the world, and there will be no powers to thwart and frustrate the plan of God. Not to say that he can be frustrated in some way that he's not sovereign anymore. My point is there will be no powers who are not subject to him. They do not have their way. In Ephesians 2 verse 2, you know this already, Paul is going to remind us that we were once following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience in this present age. But there will be a day when he crushes all of his enemies. There will be a day where justice reigns perfectly and God's patience for the wicked will run out. In the fullness of time, he will judge every sinful being that has ever rebelled against God and not claim the blood of Jesus Christ. All competing powers will be subject to him and he will be the only king, all in unity with him. We're talking about the end times when God will destroy every shred of rebellion and all the world will live in harmony and unity under the rule of God alone. No longer obeying these other authorities, these prince of the power of the air people. Well, I'll, I'll, there's more than just people there. I think we're talking about angels and demons here. All competing powers will be subject to him, and he will be the only king. Let me read something from Isaiah 2. We're going to find another prophecy about the end. He says this in verses 2 through 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Go to Isaiah 56, verse 6 and 7. And the foreigners, another word for everybody that's not a Jew, the foreigners, Gentiles, right? And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, 
and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings, we're talking about the Gentiles, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Paul is talking about a unification or a reconciliation of all things in heaven and on earth. We recognize at this time that God has allowed Satan, and make sure we understand that, has allowed Satan and his demons to work in this world. Later on in his letter, in Ephesians 6, verse 12, you know this one as well, Paul is going to remind us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul is proclaiming that cosmic reconciliation is coming, and this means that a day is coming when all competing powers will be subject to him, and he will be the only king left standing. So we can see this is what's going on here. But we also need to ask then and see, Paul, is he just merely giving us information about the end times? Like eschatology? Uh, not a lot of people turn to Ephesians to get their eschatology because he doesn't write a lot about eschatology in there. He's not going to give us a lot of information specific to that time. So what is he trying to do here? He is saying that this plan, this mystery has been set forth in Christ. He's talking about future things, right? But he says, this has been set forth in Christ. Paul's after Jesus. He's looking back. The Christ event, his crucifixion, his glorification, he is saying that it was set forth in Christ and what he has done for the church. This is important. This means that Christ's coming and working is connected to the reconciliation work that he's talking about here. They matter. What Christ has done has great meaning for the end. He is saying that this plan, this mystery, has been set forth in Christ and it is specifically going to be manifested through the church. He is saying that the coming of Jesus to live, to die, to resurrect, in the salvation that he has given to his people, saving them from their sins, and in the creation then of the church, God is revealing an important guarantee and the first part of cosmic reconciliation. He's giving an important guarantee, and he is giving them the first part of this cosmic reconciliation. Now, why do I say those two words? We get to see this a little bit more here uh, as we move on. Paul uses our redemption in Christ and our new relationship to one another, the church, to reveal God's ultimate plan to unite all things in him. Now, if you look at chapter 3, I'd like you to turn there. We need to clue in on verse 9 and 10 specifically. We're going to see that it is Paul, in verse 9, who is bringing to light the plan of the mystery of God. Let's start in verse 8, and we'll read the 10. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be now be made known to who? The rulers and authorities where? In the heavenly places. Did you catch that? 
he is saying that he, Paul, is bringing to light the plan of the mystery, okay? It has been hidden for ages in God, but now through the church, he is proclaiming to them the gospel, but also telling them who they are and what they're doing. Although they may not know it, let me tell you what you're all about, church. He says here, you are the manifold wisdom of God being made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now this blows me away. Because I think about this when we, have, when we practice rightly and obey as a church and love one another, that we proclaim the gospel to the world. That's true, right? That's not what Paul is saying here. Oh, that's still true. He is going to make it even bigger. He is going to say what's happening here is the manifold wisdom of God, his plans, his purposes, what you're doing as being part of the church and obeying him is making known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places God's purposes. It's It's fantastic. In other words, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, that's both angelic and demonic, are looking down into the theater of the church to see God's purposes and plans and wisdom come true. They may know some of these things are going to happen. They may not know about the other things. But as they look down here, this is so cool, They're, that heavenly being realm is watching this right now. And they are seeing the plan of God's reconciliation happening and playing out to a people who not only are connected to God, but who are connected to each other, and who now have a reconciliation and a unity that is only from Jesus Christ. Only from Christ this is coming. And they're seeing, oh my goodness, one day he is going to unite all things in Christ. And they get to look into this theater called the church and understand these rulers are watching as God has taken two peoples Jews and Gentiles, and miraculously made them one. How? Verse 11 and 12. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus. And by, by that realized, it's not like it occurred to him. Like he's made it real in Christ. So I'll go again. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Christ is the hinge point. It was only through his work in fulfilling the law and offering himself for our redemption that God could justly, justly lay our sin on the perfect substitute and punish him in our place. It is only through faith in Christ that we then can have his righteousness. It's only through faith in Christ that we can be made into the people of God alongside the Jew, who, by the way, also needs the work of Christ. The, uh, the Jews are saved the same way the Gentiles are, we'll see that in chapter two, through faith in the promises of God and his Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now I wanna go back for a minute to this incredible miracle though of the two peoples being made one, mainly because Paul, <laughs> he spends so much time on it, I think we ought to as well. I said earlier that the, the creation of the church, God revealed two important things, that he revealed an important guarantee and also a first part of the cosmic reconciliation. We find that God's plan is such that Christ, the church, I'm sorry, in Christ, the church experiences and now demonstrates true reconciliation with God. Again, they can look down and see that now man is reconciled to God through the God-man Jesus Christ, through his death, burial, resurrection, ascension. Now we are one in him. We find that God's plan is such this way, and we are amazed 
And this is not only just really good for us, although it is, right? We understand that the first two chapters were amazed that God overwhelms death by giving us life. Those are far away. He brings near. He takes those that were, again, seemingly enemies, complete enemies, and makes them inheritors. It's amazing what God has done in reconciling God to men. It's not, uh, this is not only really good things, though, for us, but it's also a guarantee that he can do it and that he will do that, therefore, in the end. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul's going to tell us this, 17 through 19. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. God will reconcile all things. And in the church, there has been set an example and a guarantee that God will do this work in the fullness of time. Not only, though, is this a guarantee, it's also the first part of what is coming. You've heard people say the already not yet, that the, the, the church is showing this kingdom that is already here, but it is not yet complete. It has not been consummated because we still have these evil powers that work in the heavenlies, in these realms. So how is this so? We have a part that we're seeing here. Not only though is it a guarantee, like I said, it's also helping us see that this is the first part of what is to come. The church then inaugurates the reconciliation of all things. Consider for a minute, Paul uses this language often about individuals, but he also uses it about the church as a whole. Philippians 1.1, Galatians 1.22, 1 Thessalonians 2.14, he calls the church one in Christ. In Christ. Like the reconciliation has happened, and now that entity, the church, his body, is in him. And it's not something that just goes away. It's not a pilot project. Yeah, we get to see this little thing happen over here, now we can get to the real thing of the uniting of all things. No, 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 no. This is happening, and now we are united with Christ in the heavenly places. There has been true reconciliation that has landed the church in union with Christ. It's real. And there we are there to stay. And this is awesome, but there's more. Not only are sinners reconciled to God, praise God, but they are also reconciled to each other. We said this in, in, in the supper. We've talked about other things. We recognize about the body. When Christ makes someone whole, when he saves someone, it is not only a vertical relationship, but now they are part of his body. And now we have a horizontal relationship with others who have also been saved from their sin and who are also in Christ. How does, how does the church being created in Christ demonstrate the uniting of all things? That's a good question, right? Like, let's say it again. How does the church being created in Christ demonstrate the uniting of all things, like he will in the end? It does so by the demonstrating two peoples who have irreconcilable differences, enemies seemingly of other, and he makes them one. Jews and Gentiles. Now, when we get to this section in chapter 2, it will blow our mind because I don't think that we have a good understanding of how how different a Jew and a Gentile is, specifically when it pertains to the promises and covenants of God. It does so, though, this one people, we talk about this, one people had promises. They had the covenants. They had hope. 
they had the Mosaic law. They had all this to point them that they must trust in God. The other group, no hope, no law, no covenant, no promises, none of it. How were they ever to have reconciliation with God? The only hope they ever had was to become a Jew and to listen that way and to make sure they understood who God was. The other people had this. How could he make these two peoples one? Let me read Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. And pay attention how he is taking these two different groups and making them into one new man. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinance. In other words, the, the fulfillment of the, the, the Mosaic law. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built up together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Jew and Gentile have been unified through the redeeming blood of Christ. This is the place that the heavenly rulers watch God's plan unfold. He sees that Jew and Gentile now are one in the body of Christ, the church, and they recognize that something amazing has happened, that Christ's death wasn't something that they had victory in. They're like, yes, we killed this guy. No. They realize now that through Christ's death, there's a unification of Jew and Gentile because of all that Jesus Christ has done, making a way for reconciliation between God and man. We see that Paul is proclaiming this cosmic reconciliation, this end times promises. But we ought to ask the question, why? What is Paul trying to do? Why would he do this? The study of the end times, or again, the big fancy word for that is eschatology. The study of the end times should never be about getting information download or making sure we have all our charts right or making sure we can tell you exactly what's going to happen in the future. It's not about predicting the future. We certainly are concerned about all those different things to make sure we get them right and follow and obey the Scriptures. But eschatology and telling us about all that's to come is not about us getting an information download. It wasn't that way for any of the New Testament writers, and it shouldn't be for us either. Paul has taken chapters 1 through 3 to proclaim the truths of the coming unification or reconciliation of all things, and the guarantee of this in the very existence of the church. He will show that the unification has begun, has been inaugurated in the church, and that the church is the first part of all these things being united 
in Christ. But this is not just to give them good information about what's to come. If it were, the second half of Ephesians doesn't make sense. It's like a bunch of rules and thoughts and exhortations about, you know, stuff that's going on in, in general. But when we think about now what's going on and why Paul would bring this whole thing up in chapters 1 through 3, the unifying of all creation on heaven and on earth, we recognize that chapters 4 through 6 are actually an ethic of Christian unity. Understanding who we are and that we are the theater for the heavenly beings to look into, we now are supposed to act like chapters 4 through 6. This is what it practically means to live this out. He is saying you are unified in Jesus Christ. Jew and Gentile are now made one body. But let me tell you then how that ought to look. He's not giving us random ideas about how to live our life. Four through six, again, is an ethic of Christian unity. They are kind of like uh, guidelines or exhortations for a church that is living as a unified body of Christ. Don't get me wrong. We're still going to... have our old man continue to rear his ugly head and continue to fight against that. But praise God, he works past and brings conviction and repentance for us so that we might be made whole and continue the work that he is doing and that he does completely in us. And as we obey, we want to follow in what he has done and made us. This is so like Paul. This is who you are. Now go be who you are. That's exactly what's happening here again. You are a picture of the uniting of all things that will happen in the end. You're being united, Jew, Gentile, and Jesus Christ. You're united. Now go be united, (laughs) right? Because we know that we still struggle with sin. We still struggle with all the things that would cause divisions in our own church body. We hate that. We don't want that. But the ethic in chapters 4 through 6 help us to realize if we want to live like Christ and be a declaration of his glory and unification or reconciliation to those heavenly beings, this is the way that we ought to act. And we see the prayers of Paul throughout this book. It's going to help us understand because Paul is praying that they would understand, that they would comprehend the love of God so they can get chapters 1 through 3 so that then they can do chapters one or 4 through 6. He's such a good pastor. He's like trying to say, like, Lord, help them to get this so they can live unto you. They're going to do it because you're great and glorious, but would you help them to get this? Man, I love that. It's, it's much for me to learn as well. But that is what chapters 4 through 6 are about. It's not just about eschatology, although it's partly. It's for us to live now according to his word in true unity in this body. So what do we do with all this? Lots of information. Uh, there, uh, there's probably several things we could talk about. I just want to bring out three things that we ought to go away from with this. Number one, When we consider what God has done, his plans, his purposes, what he's done in Jesus Christ, we should respond like Paul does all throughout chapter 1 and 2 to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glorious grace. It ought to roll off of our tongues and our hearts, praise and adoration for our king that he could do this and that he does this. That really just leads to the second thing. You and I are part of that. It is a personal thing. In other words, God did that for us, and it is right for us to respond in thanksgiving, in gratitude. And I'm not talking about just like when we sing songs or praise and worship and, and like together. That, that's good. I'm talking about in our own prayer times as we pour out our heart to God in praise for who He is and thankfulness for what He's done in us that we never deserved. It is an opportunity for us to praise 
of his, to his praise of His glorious grace, and then for us to be thankful for what He's done. Lastly, we must strive for unity. If that's what's going on here, if we have been unified, Jew and Gentile, in Jesus Christ, and if He is going to preach this over and over again, you're going to see when we get through 4 through 6, all different examples of what he means by unity. He's going to talk about the marriage relationship. He's going to talk about several different relationships and helping us understand this is what it looks like to obey. I'll put it out here then. We must strive for unity. And that doesn't mean unity at all costs. Like we just forget truth. We just want to be unified. Uh, That would be against the gospel. (laughs) So we need to be unified in the truth. We must together go after the truth and love one another forbearing, listening, submitting to one another. This is the work of Christian unity. It is not making a statement, we're all unified, we all look the same, or we don't, we just kind of hide behind like this unification idea. No, no, no. Like we actually have to do the work trusting Christ. The Spirit is working in us to love, to forbear, to forgive, to repent of our sin, and to start looking continually by God's grace like this unification is real. Because it is. So I'll leave us there. We ought to be, in a sense, awesome actors in the theater of the church for the heavenly beings to see. And by actors, I'll just clarify, I don't mean that we're like faking it. I mean that he is looking at what's really going on as we trust Christ and we put on Christ. And as we act like him towards one another, let's be awesome at that job that he has given to us to the praise of his glorious grace. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for the book of Ephesians and our brother Paul who has gone before us. You gave Paul to us to equip us. We thank you. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who indwells your church. Man, that's awesome. We thank you for the union we have with Jesus Christ because of his great love for you and for us. Thank you that you are the just and the justifier, Lord. We love you and ask that we would respond, that ever on our lips would be your praises, that we would, couldn't help it but praise you. You're awesome. We thank you for what you've done, even at Cornerstone, a little outpost expression of your universal church. We thank you for the scriptures, and we ask that you continue to work in us, that we would strive for unity in Jesus Christ. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.